Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Ed Ayers. I'm Nathan Connolly. And I'm Joanne Freeman. I thought we'd start today's show with a little field trip to the shores of Lake Michigan, just south of Chicago, in May of 1893. Now, a few months before, it had been a desolate stretch of dunes, marsh, and unfinished construction. But now, it's the site of the hottest ticket in the country— the 1893 World's Fair, also known as the World's Columbian Exposition. I don't want to overstretch this, but one of the words that occurs over and over again in the literature is that this is a dream world. It's a fairyland. Coming to the fair meant that you would experience the best of America as it prepared to enter a new century. I've seen photographs of blacks standing in the midst of whites watching lion training off the, you know, the fairgrounds in the midway. And smack in the middle of that was the Temple of Beauty where 40 young women from presumably 40 different nations we're all doing a version of the Hoochie Coochie dance. There are no barriers, uh, so the sounds intermix. The smells from the uh, different uh, pofas, the, um, the extraordinary um, cuisines from uh, different places on the globe mingle. The manufacturers really focused on, on incredible awe-inspiring demonstrations. So, you know, those big towering lights going up into the sky, the buildings are illuminated. The manufacturers would say, we are chaining lightning and we're harnessing the thunderbolt. There are multiple stories of people just passing out because of the, they're just overwhelmed by everything. There were 600 acres of spectacular gardens, grand exhibition halls, so-called exotic people on display, and mechanical wonders, including a quarter of a million electric lights and the very first Ferris wheel. By the time the fair closed in October of that year, it's estimated that as many as one in four Americans had come through the fairground gates. And what they saw when they came, well, that left quite an impression. Dead ahead are going to be these extraordinary buildings. They were called palaces, exposition palaces dedicated to the liberal arts, dedicated to the administration of the fair, dedicated to the U.S. government. They're stuffed full of displays from around the world. And it's not a quiet place. It is loud. There is band music being played. There are people jostling one another. There are kids running in multiple directions being corralled by their parents. But not every attraction was family-friendly. The World's Fair was about the loftiest human ideals, but also about the basest human desires. The Hoochie Coochie Dance was what we would think was fairly close to a striptease, 
uh, where a woman who was partially dressed would move around a lot of veils and titillate the um, male audience with the display of her body. Even just getting around the fair could be exciting. Transportation from one part or the other to the fair would have been by electricity. As you came through the gates, you would take a tram, a trolley car. If it was across the lagoon, you would have ridden in an electric boat. There also were a couple places moving sidewalks like we have in the airports today. The fairgrounds were designed to showcase the best of what the United States had to offer. Designers had looked to the past as well. It was meant to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in America. But those moving sidewalks and the silent trolleys were all headed towards a new future. People went to the Columbian Exposition to see themselves and not just to hold up a mirror to see what they and others looked like. They also held up a, a looking glass to step through. All of this gives an inkling, um, some brief inkling, of what the United States is going to look like as it moves forward in time. Those were the voices of historians Robert Rydell, Christopher Reed, Bernie Carlson, and Tracy Jean Boisseau. We'll be hearing from them all throughout the episode. We'll be exploring the fair's mixture of high culture and democratic energy. From the famous Midway to the very heart of the exposition, the massive court of honor with its huge white buildings doubled in a reflecting pool. We'll also visit exhibitions dedicated to women, the country of Haiti, and electricity. And we'll hear stories of how the fair showcased a new modern America, even if that version of progress didn't include all Americans. But first, we're going to explore the current running through the fair, electricity. You just couldn't avoid it. Not only was there a whole building dedicated to electricity, featuring electric devices from cigar cutters to toasters to farm equipment, but electric light was everywhere. At night, every building in the White City would have glowed inside and out, thanks to hundreds of thousands of arc lights and light bulbs. Elevators swept visitors up to rooftop promenades and restaurants. Spotlights reached the sky, while silent electric trolleys, boats, and moving sidewalks whisked visitors around the fairgrounds. For many of the estimated 27 million Americans who passed through the fair's gates, this may have been their first encounter with electric power. It was certainly the first time any of the attendees would have seen electricity used on such a grand scale. Here's Bernie Carlson again. For the average person, if you had electricity at all, which wasn't particularly likely, you would have to be like J.P. Morgan in the 1880s, and he wanted the, new, the newfangled Edison electric light. He had to basically install a steam engine, a generator, <laughs> wires in his house, and then ultimately the light bulbs, which actually went in where you used to have the gas, yeah. the, the gas fixtures. And that was, that was noisy to have a steam engine running in your basement. <laughs> it was expensive and yeah. it was dangerous. And in right. fact, the electricity basically burned through the insulation and set fire to the drapes in one of the rooms. And uh, it illustrates that this was really a high-risk, expensive venture and not for everybody. So what happens between J.P. Morgan's ill-fated home and the wonderful quarter of a million light bulbs that actually make the white city white? 
So what happens is the organizers of the Chicago World's Fair decide early on that electricity is going to be one of the central themes of, of the fair and that they see it as a way of accomplishing what Daniel Burnham, the director of works for the fair, said is, make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood. And so the, from the get-go, they uh, committed to electricity and, you know, basically asked big companies like Westinghouse uh, from Pittsburgh or the General Electric Company to compete and bid on the fair and with the expectation right from the get-go that it was going to be fully, fully electrified. And you've got one out of every four Americans coming to this fair. Which exactly. Is an incredible yeah, yeah, thing. yeah. What's the experience of electricity that people would have when they come to the fair? First and foremost, the manufacturers really focused on on incredible awe-inspiring demonstrations. So the honor court is all aglow. You see those thousands of electric lights lighting up the buildings. They've got, you know, those big towering lights going up into the sky. The buildings are illuminated. The General Electric Company asked Edison to create an 82-foot tower of light Ah. with thousands of lights up and down the column and an eight-foot light at the top which had 30,000 little prisms that were red, white, and blue, because remember, this is this is America. This is right. patriotism. And at night, the, the, the top bulb rotated around, and you'd, so you'd have these glittering red and blue images like off a disco ball. And so— I'd love to see that. Yeah, yeah. And and that created a sense of wonder in people. It's like, oh, my God, look at the the, the aesthetic things that we can do with electricity. I think two things that, that the inventors and the manufacturers really implicitly, when you look back, you know, play up. And, you know, one theme is is wonder, and the other is, is really democratizing luxury. I mean, yeah. if you think about mm-hmm. even kings and queens didn't have the, the sort of convenience that comes very quickly with electricity. People in this period were like, oh, my God, life is going to be entirely different. Hmm. Okay, so, you know, like one of their great phrases is, 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 you know, the manufacturers would say, we are chaining lightning and we're harnessing the thunderbolt. And that sounds dangerous. It sounds dangerous. <laughs> and, and boys and girls, it is. It, at the same time, people were amazed that AT&T was there and they had nice, neat female operators. And those operators were routinely placing long distance calls between Chicago and New York or Boston. Huh. And and people, you know, were just blown away by that idea that you could have a, a phone call that was it was happening for 1,500 miles. People were also, in terms of, of wonderment, just completely fascinated that Edison demonstrated his, his first motion picture machine, the kinetoscope. And people would peer into this box and they would see, you know, various things. I mean, one of the very earliest films was, was a guy sneezing. Now that wouldn't do much for us, but that was that was the equivalent of special effects at that point. Yeah, right. So so all of these things, you know, said to people, look at how, all the possibilities. Look at the look at how wonderful electricity is. It's interesting be. looking back on that. We don't think of all of those things as electricity, right? That's right. We think of of film or we think of telephone, but we don't think that it's all being powered by the same thing. Right, yeah. So Edison's kinetoscope thing, if you were to open that box, you've yeah. got you've got an electric light, you've got an electric motor. Huh. And 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 so this was this was another application of electricity. And in ways that people had, you know, no previous you know, no preconception before he came up with that. And these things all emerged in just a few years. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, essentially, the as, as again, as as I often tell people, remember that in the mid eighteen seventies, you have you have the telephone is invented is introduced in eighteen seventy six and eighteen seventy eight. Edison Edison starts showing his phonograph in eighteen seventy nine. He invents the incandescent light. 
I mean, you know, that is an incredible amount of disruptive technology in in you know in in less than five years, but they don't really come to fruition until eighteen ninety three, right? Right. That's where the you know that's where you the engineers in one place, right? Yeah, but that's where the engineers, the manufacturers, the business people all have to take those inventions and shape them into commercially viable products. And you know the this this book that I brought with me it's has a very impressive book. Right. Tell yeah. us about this book. It is it is about seven hundred or eight hundred pages, titled "The World's Columbian Exposition, Chicago, eighteen ninety three. The book really walks you through, um, you know, the major the major exhibits. My favorite passage at the end of this chapter about all the things that electricity can do is this, uh-huh. and it says, "Besides these, will be found in endless profusion exhibits of wires and cables, copper in all forms for electrical purposes, instruments for measuring the current in various ways, and motors, push buttons, and bells. In fact, every known appliance for any and every purpose. In truth, it can be said that a house could, from the contents of the electricity building, be so completely." equipped electrically that there would not be the slightest necessity for lighting a match in it from one year's end to the next. Wow. No matches. No matches. That's your horseless carriage. That's the future. Bernie Carlson is a historian of technology at the University of Virginia and the author of Tesla, Inventor of the Electric Age. The World's Columbian Exposition pulsed with the idea of innovation and modernity. On one hand, visitors could marvel at technological advances like the electric gleam of the White City, but fair organizers wanted to put American social progress on display as well. That included the question of what the future would look like for women. In the lead-up to the fair, women's groups lobbied hard for official space and representation at the exposition. The result was the Women's Building. The building's purpose was specifically and precisely, explicitly, to locate women within the modern world. Tracy Jean Boisseau is a historian at Purdue University. Even in its own moment, it was perceived by visitors, commentators on the fair, as one of the most innovative aspects of this particular exposition. That's because Chicago was the first World's Fair to dedicate an entire exhibit to the achievements of the so-called fairer sex. Women also played key roles in developing the space. Major decisions were made by the Board of Lady Managers, and the structure itself was designed by a woman, 21-year-old Sophia Hayden. Most women talk about how proud they were to realize women's accomplishments. The building would have been filled with evidence of women's contribution to the modern world, their contributions to industrial innovation, to technology. Um, So there are lawyers and there are authors and a library, a women's library that had about 7,000 volumes in it. Mm, This was mm. an attempt to collect a copy of all of the books authored by women gathered in one place. So this sounds like a uniformly positive idea in all the contributions that you've outlined, but I have to imagine that there was some debate about the women's building. (laughs) Oh, yes. It was not uniformly positive. 
not between different groups of women and not even Mm. within any one demographic of women. Behind the scenes, women's groups vied for power and representation. Black women, for example, were largely excluded. But the most high-profile fight was waged over control of the exhibit, pitting the wealthy socialites of Chicago, like Board of Lady Managers President Bertha Palmer, against more radical women, like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Those two groups battled over whether or not the women's building should be all about demanding more political rights for women, uh, especially in terms of the, the public sphere, or whether or not it should be merely a celebration of women's status as it was at that moment in the United States. For the gotcha. most part, Bertha Palmer for, you know, wins out with that. So, so tell me about Bertha Palmer. Well, Bertha Palmer was um, very comfortable in the limelight. She um, was not the power behind the throne. She very much wanted to be the power in the throne. And I use Mm. the term throne um, advisedly because she often uh, was referred to as the queen of the fair or she talks Mm. about herself as a queen. Mm -hmm. She was very hands-on in the decision-making with everything to do with the women's building. So... um, Bertha Palmer gets to get her say out in lots of different ways, Um, but there are so many other voices that find a way in. So you've got, it sounds like, a debate or a set of conversations about the state of women at the fair, but also in the late 19th century. Exactly. So, for instance, once Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton uh, and other suffragists um, and and women's rights advocates were excluded from the organizing of the women's building. They formed their own rival association and did everything they could to undermine the women's the board of lady managers. Wow! So they formed what they called the Queen Isabella Association. So they try to sort of raise her up as the female. Um, equivalent of Columbus in the in the discovery. They erect a statue, have her, the sculpture itself um, in its own pavilion, and then uh, hold a series of political speeches mm. um, and exhibits there in an attempt to present a more radical or at least politicized messaging. So I think that having that Isabella statue was in your face, um, Bertha Palmer, <laughs> in, a, in a really productive way. So you've got uh, this debate that's happening. Is it safe to say that the architecture and the presence and just the fact of the woman's building in real hard stone, that that reflects some kind of resolution in, in the sense that you're going to take something away from the fair about women and their contributions simply by virtue of the fact that this magnificent building is there at the fair? Absolutely, and that's what we, we see in women's um, comments in magazines and, and in um, newspaper coverage. Um, but I think that all of the um, the contests for power uh, tell us more than anything how important this opportunity was. There was no other opportunity, no other venue open to women uh, at this moment in the 19th century to come together and to see each other. So it's not, it shouldn't surprise us to see as much contention as we see because there was a lot at stake. This event becomes 
a huge, important moment for women's organizing. And that's what we see more than anything else, I, mm-hmm. I think. And I think it's on display most obviously in the Women's Congress, the Congress of Representative Women that's held for a week at the outset of the fair. What was that? So the Congress of Representative Women, um, often just referred to as the Congress of Women, um, Mm. was the biggest, most important uh, gathering of of women who were pro- professional or high profile in some way, often for their politics. Mm-hmm. Um, there were about 150,000 um, women in attendance over the course of just six days um, to hear over 300 different speeches by prominent women that they would have heard of that would have been in the national press. Wow. But the Congress was not micromanaged by Bertha Palmer or the Board of Lady Managers. And so inevitably, these speeches were more than simply uh, applause for women's achievement, but Mm -hmm. actual claims on the public sphere and claims on more uh, political rights and women's suffrage. The Woman's Building sat near the entrance of what was known as the Midway. Here's historian Robert Rydell, who we heard from earlier in the show. The Midway, technically the Midway Plaisance at the Chicago Fair, was a mile avenue of fun, um, instruction, frolic, um, all rolled into one. At its heart was a 290-foot-tall revolving wheel named after its inventor, George Ferris. The Ferris wheel, now a carnival staple, was the Midway Star attraction. But wait, there's more! Fairgoers could wander among a series of outdoor museums, ethnological villages that displayed people from around the globe. The term village wasn't just a nice way to gloss over what was, in essence, a kind of human zoo. People lived there. There's an Algerian palace, a Tunis village. The African village was called the Dahomeyan village after Dahomey. Uh, There are Chinese villages, a Javanese village. Uh, There are uh, food concessions. There are breweries. There's a German village, an Austrian village, Japanese bazaar. It's just, uh, it's an extraordinarily lively place. And I guess um, it's usually something that people, if they know about it, they think about what it looked like. But I think it's so important to understand um, what it sounded like. The music uh, ranged from um, uh, every quarter of the globe, although it's interesting that um, for most commentators, people from um, Africa and the Middle East uh, didn't play music so much as produce sound or noise. Um, Music came from the Austrian village and the German village. There are no barriers, uh, so the sounds intermix. The smells from the uh, different uh, pauvres, the, um, the extraordinary um, cuisines from uh, different places on the globe mingle. Uh, it was uh, one of these just surround sound places where one could exercise um, all, of the, all of the senses, from sight to sound to touch, because in these ethnological villages, it was not uncommon for visitors to go up and try um, to actually um, touch, sometimes quite inappropriately, people who were um, deemed savages or primitives. 
visitors had the idea they were stepping into a sort of primitive zone or an exotic, backward set of cultures. That's Tracy Jean Boisseau again. And so you see lots of things like the hoochie-coochie dance. (laughs) Hoochie-coochie dance, what's that? The hoochie-coochie dance was what we would think was fairly close to a striptease, uh, where a woman who was partially dressed would move around a lot of veils and titillate the um, male audience with the display of her body. It was called the Danse du Ventre, um, translated the belly dance. And there's a little theme song for the uh, belly dancers to dance to. And it was called uh, the Hoochie Coochie. Well, now that you've mentioned that, you know, you're going to have to hum it. <laughs> well, uh, I, you, you probably don't want me to, but it goes something like this. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. My humming is not so good, but I think you get the drift. This was a dance that was um, imagined as representing uh, all of the Middle East in its exotic Orientalist splendor. And it was performed by several different women, actually, but they were often imagined as one woman who was referred to as Little Egypt. The Hoochie Coochie dancers were actually the entertainment at the Algerian village. And they were a huge hit, much to the annoyance of onlookers at the nearby women's building. If you sat on the rooftop deck of the women's building, which millions of women over the course of the five or six months of the fair did, you had a view not only to the court of honor in the white city, but in the other direction, you had a view directly over the midway and smack in the middle of that was the Temple of Beauty, where 40 young women from presumably 40 different nations, were all doing a version of the hoochie-coochie dance. And so there was lots of conversation and lots of criticism about sort of the terrible, salacious things that were happening in their sight line (laughs) on the midway. How interesting that the women's building, one of these um, quite large neoclassical buildings, is put um, right at it. It hinges the midway Um, to the white city, as if um, white middle-class women are really supposed to be the arbiters between something called civilization and something called savagery. Rydell says the scandalous, entertaining midway was supposedly educational. One of the chief purposes of the fair was to show the rest of the world, um, here meaning New York City, that Chicago was as civilized as any East Coast city and as certainly as any Parisian capital. So um, civilization, culture, both spelled with a capital C, were animating, animating um, uh, drives. So the Midway itself was not um, necessarily considered a primary part of the fair at the beginning. But as it became clear that the fair was going to cost a lot of money to put on, it was clear that these sorts of exhibits, these villages and these concessions with food and beer um, actually were money makers. So the Midway takes form um, in in a curious way because the exposition directors did not want it to detract from capital C culture, capital C civilization. They wanted the Midway to augment it and to be an educational uh, strip, to be a kind of outdoor ethnological museum. So they affixed it in the exposition catalog uh, and gave it a department uh, letter, Department M, which was also the category in which anthropology was placed. Hmm. So it's sort of adding a 
humanity component to this larger cultural experience? Well, it's a humanity component, but it's it's a humanity with a particular um, vision attached to it, in particular hierarchical ways that reinforce uh, dominant ways of, um, of thinking about people from foreign colonies and even internal colonies like American Indian reservations. Hmm. And how did they communicate that particular message about ranking peoples? Well, let me come at that question in a couple of ways. Um, One of the ways that this message got communicated was through the organization of Midway shows. So at one extreme, remember the Midway is a mile long, so at one extreme of the Midway, the farthest from the white city, uh, you have uh, the Dahomeyan village, the American Indian villages, and then one could um, make one's way towards the white city, passing the Austrian village, passing uh, the Middle Eastern villages, the German village. So in a sense, as the newspapers described it, one could follow the spiral of evolution from its most primitive and barbaric towards civilization, heading towards the white city. So that's one way that this um, uh, message gets conveyed, and the other is contractual. And so for the Dahomeans, the Africans uh, who perform at the fair, uh, their contract um, very explicitly states that they are to perform as savages. And when it becomes apparent um, in the eyes of the concessionaire, who is a French um, uh, a French man of uh, sort of a dubious background, um, when uh, his concession isn't making quite as much money as he thinks it should, um, he concludes that it's because his performers aren't being, in quotes now, savage enough. So he mm. uh, basically forces them to drink beer from the uh, brewery next door on the other side. So staged, carefully staged lessons about this supposed change in civilization. Oh, yes, yes. They're they're very carefully staged. And at the same time, it's uh, just so interesting to see how that careful staging sometimes collapses under its own weight. Um, because uh, the people who are there to perform, um, the, the entrepreneurs and the fair managers might have seen them as, as specimens, but the people who are there to perform um, are actually pretty adept at um, counteracting the intentions of mm. fair organizers, and that gets to be a pretty interesting story as well. Well, so what did some of those people do? Well, and I'll just stick with the African village for a moment. So every uh, every day, the um, uh, so-called denizens of the Midway would organize a, an ethnological parade, and they would start at the far end of the Midway and march towards the White City. And um, as uh, several scholars have, have noted, um, the um, Africans would, as they paraded, would chant in there. Um, their own languages, and they would sing songs. And um, there actually happened to be someone from West Africa, um, a European, who claimed that he understood what the West Africans were saying, and it was something along the lines of, well, please come to Dahomey, and we'll slit your white throats. So the midways and these representations are just remarkably interesting and remarkably complex and really um, underscore the importance of, um, of, of why historians study these cultural representations and why they matter so much. It's so, it's so fascinating because the, the mix of um, entertainment and really deep statements um, is such a it's such a strange brew of things to yoke together, and and yet obviously it's a strong combination that pulls people. Oh yes, absolutely, and it um, and it's going to continue with um, subsequent fairs. It's not um, remember there's a tradition of fairs um, uh, before Chicago, and there's certainly a tradition of fairs that comes after Chicago. 
So by locating the midway with really a lot of um, somewhat maybe really sleazy um, performances and calling them ethnological villages, and you can go watch the hoochie coochie dance and say, oh no, I'm actually I'm, <laughs> I'm going I'm going there to learn about I'm different cultures. I'm, culture. I'm, I'm yes. studying the culture by actually <laughs> suggesting that the midway could have this higher, nobler educational purpose um, is terrifically important because it basically sets in motion an argument you're going to hear across the 20th century. That education, of course, um, can and should be entertaining. Well, that actually leads me to maybe my last question here, which is, what would you say is the legacy of the midway? Oh, my. Uh, The legacy of the midway is... Um, but it's not a leg. It's not a single legacy. There are multiple legacies um, uh, tied to the power of uh, media, and this is a prototype of mass media, how it can inform the way people think. And then maybe the most compelling legacy for your listeners might well be in the context of what is about to be built pretty much right where that midway plaisance intersected with the white city. And what is about to be built, I think everyone in Chicago will know, um, is uh, President Obama's library. And so if you think about um, the Midway and you think about the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition as this um, uh, vehicle for disseminating some really quite um, horrible ideas about African Americans and people of color around the world, I think it's really a... uh, quite a tribute to the legacy of resistance that uh, the Obama Library is going to be um, uh, right where the white city once stood. Robert Rydell is a historian at Montana State University. We also heard from Tracy Jean Boisseau. She's a historian at Purdue University and co-editor of Gendering the Fair, Histories of Women and Gender at World's Fairs. One thing you wouldn't find on the fairgrounds was a building solely devoted to African Americans. That was the case even though in the 30 years since the end of slavery, African Americans had made major gains in law, medicine, technology, and the arts. Considering the overall theme of the fair was progress, the exclusion of an exhibit explicitly dedicated to the advances of African Americans was a slap in the face to many. But there was little they could do about it. It's similar to 21st century America. If you don't have backers or you don't control wealth, then you won't be heard. Historian Christopher Reed. And then, of course, if you throw in the issue of race, you've got a double handicap. Mm -hmm. The result was you had a rich man's event presented to the global public in 1893. But exclusion was an insult that would not be tolerated. Prominent black activists decided to write a pamphlet they would circulate to fairgoers. Contributors included Frederick Douglass and journalist Ida B. Wells. The exhibit of the progress made by a race in 25 years of freedom, as against 250 years of slavery, would have been the greatest tribute to the greatness and progressiveness of the American institutions, which could have been shown the world. 
the colored people of this great republic number eight millions, more than one-tenth of the whole population of the United States. And that same pamphlet had a, another 20-page um, essay on the achievements of African Americans as inventors, educators, political participants, as good citizens. We earnestly desire to show some results of our first 30 years of acknowledged manhood and womanhood. Wherein we have failed, it has not been our fault, but our misfortune. And it is sincerely hoped that this brief story, not only of our successes, but of trials and failures, our hopes and disappointments will relieve us of the charge of indifference and indolence. Douglas and Wells were both at the fair, and you could find them at the one place where there was an official black presence, the Haitian Pavilion. The government of Haiti built a pavilion, and it was the first structure constructed on the fairgrounds. And their building was built near the, the building from the United Kingdom, from the building from France, from Sweden, from Germany. And so to have that building on the fairgrounds gave African-Americans the opportunity to say, look at what black people had done. And from that uh, building, Frederick Douglass held sway as the voice of the Haitian people. And in the mind and eyes of black Americans, he was also the voice of black America. Haiti had selected Douglass as a representative because he had been U.S. minister to Haiti. And as the only country that had liberated itself from slavery and remained free, the Haitian pavilion embodied black progress to many African-American fairgoers. So the building was quite similar to the pavilions or structures that other nations built, not as elaborate, but it was a one-story um, structure, uh, ornate on the outside with, I'm assuming, uh, elaborate furnishings inside so that um, people who visited would be impressed with what Haiti wanted to be on the world scene. Whites felt comfortable coming into the pavilion and standing outside the pavilion. Uh, the same with African Americans. It was a pleasant experience to go to the pavilion, see the pavilion, have cultural interchange with Frederick Douglass, and perhaps even hear his grandson play the violin mm. inside the pavilion. Haitian coffee was served to visitors, and the pavilion had an ambiance of sophistication with Haitian and French influences. Furniture and the paintings and the flora would have all been something that white Americans would have uh, easily recognized as um, representative of a nation that was modern. So not, not a lot of indigenous work then from local Haitians? No, not really. There was not an indigenous uh, reflection of Haiti. For mm -hmm. example, the, there was no connection between the people of Dahomey, the fine people of Dahomey, who had populated Haiti as slaves, no connection between the pavilion and them, and they were located about a mile west of the pavilion on the uh, Midway Plaisance. Now, Frederick Douglass, in some of his speeches at the Haitian Pavilion, will explicitly invoke the Dahomey village, won't he? 
Frederick Douglass had great disdain for the presence of the uh, Dahomeans. Frederick Douglass, uh, who was of mixed heritage, he was very modern and had nothing good to say about Dahomey Village. And he did not speak about it on a regular basis. It did mm-hmm. come up from time to time. And there's a famous statement he made about not measuring Negroes of the 1890s against the barbarism to be seen down at Dahomey Village. He was quite conscious, as were many black Americans in the early 20th century, that the only way to prove worthiness to white Americans was to distance themselves from the image of Africa in the white mind. So, Professor Reed, give me a sense of what African-Americans did to try to get to the fair, how many of them might have been able to get there, and what was their experience once they arrived on the fairgrounds? Once African-Americans heard that there was going to be a World's Fair and that they would be included to some extent, perhaps not meeting their fondest expectations, but they would be welcomed in Chicago, by the thousands they made plans to travel by railroad to Chicago. And the railroads accommodated their desires by having um, group fairs. And some black entrepreneurs in the city even built some structures to house visitors to the city. Coming to Chicago meant you were free and you could see the best of America. Hmm. Uh, The fair offered uh, spaciousness, electric lighting, flush toilets, food samples. I've seen photographs of blacks standing in the midst of whites watching lion training off the, you know, the fairgrounds in the midway. When people didn't enjoy themselves on the fairgrounds, they visited black churches and black homes and took advantage of the hospitality afforded in those venues. Hmm. By the way, uh, a group met in Chicago during the fair and made plans to run a black man for president, which was done in 1904. In hmm. over eight days, there was a conference sponsored by the nation's congregationalists to discuss the matter of leaving America for Africa or remaining here, mm-hmm. making this a better place to live. The final decision by the man who was to Mary Ida B. Wells was, we're going to stay and continue to improve conditions in this country for everyone. So, Professor Reed, being from Chicago, knowing the South Side, do you ever go down to the old Midway or see yourself on the former fairgrounds and imagine what it was like then? Oh, yes, yes, I've done that many times. I live near uh, the fairgrounds, and um, I... uh, have quite an imagination being a historian. <laughs> uh, I've often thought what it would have been like to have ridden on the 1,000-plus um, seat Ferris wheel. Hmm. Then on the other hand, I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> I would have enjoyed myself had I been there in 1893. Christopher Reed is Professor Emeritus of History at Roosevelt University and the author of All the World is Here, The Black Presence at White City.
Our last stop on our tour of the world's Colombian exposition takes us several miles off the fairgrounds to downtown Chicago. Today, the Art Institute of Chicago is a world-renowned museum. It's also one of the few remaining buildings that was used during the exposition. In 1893, the Institute served as an auxiliary meeting hall for a series of conventions called Congresses. The Congresses were the intellectual side of the fair. This is scholar Matt Hedstrom. He says these Congresses were devoted to all manner of subjects, things such as the arts, manufacturing, and medicine. And they were all designed to showcase, look how far we've come, look at the state of the art in these various fields, look at the contribution of American civilization to these forms of knowledge. The capstone of these congresses was one dedicated to faith, the Parliament of the World's Religions. Held in September, near the tail end of the fair, the session brought together religious figures from around the globe. The local host and most attendees were English-speaking Protestants. Catholic and Jewish representatives made the trip as well. But there were a significant number of Buddhists and Hindus, uh, smaller numbers of Muslims, Jains, representatives of Shinto from Japan. Sometimes they were called the enlightened heathens, those who were not Christians, but who had civilization, who had great ideas to contribute. The Congress was the fulfillment of a dream articulated a year before by Chicago minister John Henry Barrows, president of the parliament. In front of a huge crowd at New York's Madison Square Garden, he had outlined his vision. For the first time in history, the representatives of the leading historic faiths will meet in fraternal conference over the great things of human life and destiny. I mean, on the one hand, it was um, a progressive's vision of bringing representatives, the great world religions, together to uh, come to understand each other. I have no doubt that this phenomenal meeting will make apparent the fact that there is a certain unity in religion. That is, that men not only have common desires and needs, but also have perceived more or less clearly certain common truths. And yet, Barrows was also a Christian minister who had a very clear sense of a kind of hierarchy of culture, a hierarchy of civilizations. He was a, a Darwinist, and so had a sort of evolutionary understanding of the trajectory of history, and very clearly understood Christianity as sort of standing at the apex of civilizations, the way the white city was. He even celebrated the attendance of the so-called enlightened heathens. He talks about the full sun and the twilight, and he sees basically the illumination of Christianity offering uh, a visions of truth in its full, right, standing in full daylight. The other great religions had truths to share, but they were sort of dimmed. So he describes them as in the twilight. Right? It's not bad, it's not wrong, it's just not fully developed. So in that sense, like the other congresses, it's like, what's the state of the art in finance? What's the state of the art in engineering? Well, what's the state of the art in religion? It's progressive Protestant Christianity. America will be on exhibition the coming year, and especially American Christianity. You have an opportunity of influencing the whole world with the spirit of our common Christianity without parallel in ancient or modern times. That is the most modern, the most up-to-date, and the completest 
form of religion, and he thought the parliament would ultimately demonstrate that. But it didn't really pan out that way. Because some of the other participants didn't quite play their assigned roles. Two participants in particular, Hindu Swami Vivekananda from India and Buddhist Anagarika Dharmapala from Ceylon, now Sri Lanka. Both men had been educated by Westerners. They understood their audience far more than their audience understood them. Vivekananda was, a, by all accounts, a spectacular showman. And many consider him to be the kind of star of the show. Somebody who was just a spellbinding speaker who had that kind of it factor as an orator. That it factor was on full display the very first day of the parliament. Reportedly, Swami Vivekananda said just five words in greeting, sisters and brothers of America, and the crowd burst into applause for several minutes. Audience members were enthralled by the Swami in his orange robes and yellow turban. He was playing the role of the monk from the East with the wisdom from an ancient culture and an ancient civilization. And he knew how to play to Westerners' expectations of what someone in that capacity should look like and sound like. And he, he played it perfectly. So he could speak the language of the fair and the language of the parliament of religions, the language of progress, the language of modernity, the language of the compatibility of science and philosophy with religious wisdom. Um, he simply thought that a kind of hierarchy of civilizations that said Christianity had the full illumination and others groped not in darkness but in twilight was inaccurate. And that this particular Christian attitude had a negative impact on his people. Vivekananda was an outspoken Indian nationalist. In fact, today he's considered a spiritual father of modern India. And so he was deeply critical of the ways in which he thought that Christian theological claims to a kind of an exclusive uh, hold on truth facilitated Christian, in his case British, imperialism. So, Vivekananda used his platform at the Congress to preach a message of spiritual equality. He believed that all religions were manifestations of the divine. That first day of the parliament, he told the assembled crowd, The present convention, which is one of the most august assemblies ever held, is in itself a vindication, a declaration to the world of the most wonderful doctrine preached in the Gita. Whosoever comes to me through whatever form, I reach him. This is the way he could bring that message and subtly subvert the kind of hierarchies that were quite present from the Christian point of view in the parliament. His message was well-received, as was Anagarika Dharmapala's. Dharmapala didn't have the same star wattage of his contemporary, but like Vivekananda, he understood what fairgoers were looking for. He presented Buddhism in terms that I think are very familiar to those of us in the 21st century West, in a sense as the fulfillment of a dream that is simply a philosophy of mind. He said theology is a way of thinking that represents the past and the future will be about philosophy and psychology. And if that's the case, then Buddhism is better positioned to lead us into that future 
than Christianity is. Christianity requires belief in all kinds of supernatural historical events. Said so we Buddhists, we don't need that. His message found a ready and immediate audience. He very famously took a convert. A man named C.T. Strauss became the first public convert to Buddhism on American soil. His conversion reportedly left his Jewish family at a loss. As a newspaper put it, they could not understand his move toward the effete religious mysticism of the East. This is not the way things were supposed to work. Asians don't come to the United States as missionaries. And here was Dharmapala taking an American convert on the streets of Chicago in 1893. Hedstrom says it's not as if thousands of Americans immediately followed in Strauss's footsteps, but he argues that it does mark a shift in American religious consciousness. Vivekananda and Dharmapala found a spiritually hungry audience at the World's Fair. When it was over, they both set up learning centers for their faiths in cities across the United States. So for the first time, if you were an American, what we might today call a seeker, there was a place to go, there were people to talk to, there was literature. But even more, on this most public of stages, it did make this case for those who were interested in a kind of progressive story of religion that one might need to look outside of Christianity. And so the appeal... I think, for religious liberals across the 20th century for sort of looking east is the story that Vivekananda and Dharmapala told best. And in doing so, they counter the message that men such as Barrows had envisioned for the fair. And in a sense, that's what Vivekananda and Dharmapala were doing. Like, okay, you want to tell a story about uh, the progress of civilizations and the coming of a kind of uh, fulfillment of a religious dream? Great. Let me tell you that story. Matt Hedstrom is a religious studies professor at the University of Virginia. He's the author of The Rise of Liberal Religion, Book Culture and American Spirituality in the 20th Century. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by David Stenhouse, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Anjali Bishash, Sequoia Carrillo, Courtney Spagna, Aaron Teeling, Korean Thomas, and Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. Special thanks to our wonderful voice actors this week. Sharon Milner, who played Ida B. Wells, William Jones, who played Frederick Douglass, James Scales as John Henry Barrows, and Abhishek Mishra as Swami Vivekananda. And as always, thanks to the Johns Hopkins Studio in Baltimore. 
Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.